Imagine living your life after 50 and feeling energized and excited about your future. Welcome to the Women in the Middle podcast, the podcast for women who are ready to figure out what they want and create the life they deserve. Here's your host and master certified life coach, Susie Rosenstein. Hey there, welcome back to the podcast, Women in the Middle. I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, and I'm so glad to be here with you again for this week's episode, which is all about what it's like to be a daughter of a parent who has Alzheimer's and dementia. This week's guest is someone who not only dealt with this diagnosis with her mom, but also with her dad. And she used her experiences to inform her career helping families dealing with this as well. I'm super excited to introduce you to my guest, Heather Nagin, this week. Heather is a speech-language pathologist. She likes to say that she's a specialist of messages in and messages out and the disruption in between. Specifically, she uses communication-focused assessment and therapy to help those with Alzheimer's and dementia symptoms and disruptions and their families. We are totally inundated with negative messages about adult-onset cognitive decline Alzheimer's and dementia and caregiving responsibilities. And it's totally a midlife thing, especially as a midlife woman. As daughters, it's super common to be dealing with this at this age and stage of your life. When Heather was dealing with this personally with her mom, she asked an important question. Is this the full story? Is there nothing that I can do? Is it just doom and gloom? She was convinced that it wasn't the whole story. She knew that there had to be more you could do. She knew that her training and experience could add value to understanding this whole problem. She really had a belief that there had to be more hope and more opportunity. Now, when a family member has Alzheimer's and or dementia, it's pretty easy to feel hopeless. This diagnosis can be overwhelming and stressful. The right approach can uncover potential, guide you with empowering choices, and deliver successful results to improve your day and lighten your load. It turns out that speech language assessment and therapy can really help with the symptoms and can also really help the families. And I have to say, when I first met Heather and I met her through a networking group, uh, I, I was really surprised. I'm like, what does speech language pathology have to do with Alzheimer's and dementia? Because the only experience I had was when my kids were little and, you know, one of them had a lisp or the other one had trouble distinguishing certain sounds. It never occurred to me. And it turns out that this, uh, that the way Heather has really uh, looked at everything and understood everything and brought her training experience to this particular diagnosis is fascinating. Okay, and if this is the first time you're listening to Women in the Middle, welcome. I am so glad you're here. I think you will like it around here. We are all about doing this midlife thing together and laughing a little along the way. <laughs> sometimes it's about chin hair, and sometimes it's about how to get out of your own way when it comes to prioritizing yourself to do what's important to you. Whatever the case, you have more power and opportunity than you think, and I am here for you. Okay, one more thing I want to mention before we dive into the interview with Heather. Unbeknownst to me, I had a little bit of difficulty with my mic during this interview. So apologies for that. It's still totally fine. I know you'll get a lot out of meeting Heather Nagin, but when the mic is mine, when I am the one speaking, I'm not quite as crisp as I normally am. But you will totally enjoy the interview. It's really not a problem. Please... On that note, enjoy this interview. Hi, Heather. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Women in the Middle podcast. Hi, Susie. So nice to be your guest. You know, it's so fun for me to think about all the people in my neighborhood, like Mr. Rogers, and think about who I know that I can't wait to introduce to the Women in the Middle community. And Heather and I met in a networking group and we just completely connected. And her message is so relevant, so I can't wait to dive in. Heather, can you tell us a little bit about how you help people? 
Thanks, Susie. So um, I am by profession and training a speech language pathologist. I was trained in South Africa. You might hear that in my accent. It's been many years uh, since my training, but um, I actually graduated um, at the University of Advertisement, Johannesburg, South Africa, with a dual degree in speech language pathology and audiology, and then left for Canada. So my career is really shaped by work as a professional. What I do right now is I help individuals and families who are dealing with something I know it's commonplace to talk about, Alzheimer's and dementia. And so my focus is, as a professional, to provide those professional services um, to individuals because everybody's suffering. People are so stressed. And with my experience in the work of adult neuro, um, I've really applied what I know in the way that I know best to helping people at the different stages. That is where I want to go next because I know that this affected you personally. And so one thing that I'm so interested in with my guests is how they have uh, made their careers more fulfilling as they aged in midlife. And I know that that happened to you. So tell us a little bit about how you became so interested in looking at Alzheimer's and dementia from a broader familial type of, is familial? Yeah, familial type of perspective. In a sense. And you know, I always say that um, sometimes we are not prepared. Uh, we're just not thinking that what we're doing is actually laying the groundwork, the foundation uh, for everything that's to come ahead. And I would say that um, my upbringing was probably the first step, meaning that we lived in an intergenerational home. I shared a bedroom with my grandmother. And my really? Yeah, because my father insisted that his mother-in-law came to live with us. It was very interesting because she was at one point in my life, in my adolescent years, literally like my best friend. And I think that the kernel of my comfort working with not just adults, which already is something that I'm passionate about, but working with more senior adults or, you know, especially hearing the stories and having the patience to be a good listener. Those were the seeds that were set very, very early in my life. Oh my bond. gosh, Heather, that is so interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I don't think I've ever heard that from anybody. Anybody had to share a, a room with their grandmother. That's so interesting. It reminds me a little bit. I mean, this is not the same thing, but we have this family cottage. And on my very first date with my husband, the very first time I went up there, I was not, you know, I barely knew him. And we slept in a room with his great what with his grandmother and and his brother <laughs> and me and him and we were all in there and that was the first time I remember sleeping in a bedroom with a grandmother and it wasn't my grandmother and it was only one time so that's so interesting so was that your whole childhood no there were different pockets um, but it's sort of interesting and I really feel as a more mature person finding my personal passion and goal later in life, um, when I stop and think, you know, where did this all come from? There were some very dramatic circumstances that shaped me as a human being. And then, of course, the circumstances with Alzheimer's and dementia. So I'm kind of backtracking a little to say I had that experience. I had a lot of distance communication with my own parents for 20 years, as I lived in Canada and they lived in South Africa. So there was years of that. Wow. Years, yeah. And that was a very um, cementing part of breakdown in communication and using creativity. And that's the other part of um, what I feel so passionate about is that as we're searching for meaning in our lives, as we are in the midlife and beyond, everything we do has meaning. And we have to search for the creativity of partnering something we do have interest and skill at, but something that we really have the passion and motivation to either solve problems or explore things. And so all of these little bits and pieces were overlaying with the fact that, yeah, I was bumping along in my career doing 
you know, I thought pretty mundane stuff, um, working in adult neuro, in a rehab center, uh, working in the community. But the community became the life experience that gave me that broad perspective. And all of what I gained for the 20 years I worked in the community was understanding not everybody looks like me, not everybody sounds like me, not everybody lives like me. And that getting into people's homes, getting into their lives was literally the most groundbreaking observation that I was able to almost under a microscope, look at each individual in their life with their circumstances working around their kitchen tables. And so all of these experiences, I think, were the footprints. that I, Oh, yes, I love that. The footprints they gave you, I'm sorry I interrupted. Go ahead, go ahead. You can see I that this was... Saying, yeah, like I, I, I was just thinking like, so many of my clients don't see how things are connected and don't see the value in like what you're talking about in the mundane or in the, the everyday experiences. And several of the women I've interviewed have talked about this, that nothing is wasted, that if you look at these things, you can find these clues as to when you started to become more interested or more inquisitive about a thing or two, or when you started to attract more of that into your life. And at the same time, part of the reason that so many of us become unfulfilled with what we've been doing for 20 years is because we're not able to use as much creativity as we can. So I love that you talked about creativity because creativity starts with the way you're thinking about possibility. Quite right. And then... You know, all of these things were like little threads and then the big sledgehammer hit. And that was actually with my mom. This was my mom. And, you know, I, I'm lucky enough, as I say, to have had two parents with Alzheimer's and dementia, which you might think that it would make me run for the hills. <laughs> the thing is that I feel that this has literally been the gift. The gift is that it was the most difficult thing to bring my parents to Canada, to settle them, and then to start seeing my mom not functioning so well. Was it the adjustment? Was it the newness? Wasn't the language, that's for sure. And I was so busy with my life and my career and my kids and all those, you know, life distractions. I don't think I was paying attention. How old were you then? Well, my, my it's worked that out. So it's been, it's, wow, I'm going to be telling the story here. I was in my 40s. Mm -hmm. So as this was emerging and then beyond, you know, this was really, and I'm sure most people that busy time of your life where it's almost hard to imagine anything other than a frenetic life pattern. Yeah, I call it a chaotic world. It's just a chaotic <laughs> phase. And then all of a sudden, another 10 years goes by. You're just so focused on establishing your home, mm -hmm. paying down the mortgage, doing your career. And, and the kids are going through so many changes at that point. Exactly. <laughs> and so I really think that and a big part was the busyness of my life, and I'm a real multitasker. So I'm an entertainer, and I'm suddenly, so and you know, I don't think that I was focused on the quietness of finding out until I did what was unraveling in my mom's mind. And it's a funny thing that even as close as it might be that I was involved, and here I am, you know, the shepherd bringing my parents and all those things. I really didn't know the nitty gritties of their lives. I didn't know much about my mom because of the distance. And literally, when I started to feel things weren't right and took her to the doctor and then went to the geriatrician, it was the biggest shock to be told that she has mild cognitive impairment. And it was that moment that I feel for the people who come and see me is this emotional, I'm an insider. This is 
my thing. Like I'm adult neuro trained and yet my own mother with these apparently obvious symptoms was invisible to me. Heather, that is so important that you shared it because of, of anybody, you would be the most equipped to see things, but it's like any of the stuff that we deal with when it's your own problem, it's much harder to see when you're in the pain and the swirl of the chaotic life. <laughs> and maybe it wasn't even that painful, it was just really busy but you were suspicious that something wasn't quite right. But even to you, it was mm -hmm. a surprise. That's, I think that is so important to share. And then, you know, the pain of it was being alone, meaning that um, I had one sibling and my sibling was not involved. And in fact mm -hmm. was, you know, didn't come to any of the follow-up appointments. You know, always I would update, but there was not really me with a team. It was me with my mom. My dad was not coming to any of these appointments. And so the pain of hearing and then the pain of being the conduit for the family and the pain of being dealt with as if, well, you must be the professional or you surely must know or hear the references. Pamphlet one, pamphlet two, pamphlet three, goodbye, and I'll see you in three months. This whole rawness, exactly, wow. that the, the experience was that I literally buried this whole diagnosis as if it was a small case of pregnancy. Now, we all know what happens with being pregnant. You can be <laughs> a little bit pregnant, <laughs> and hopefully if you're healthy, you're going to be very pregnant. But it was a very simple process of denial. And the interesting part of my story with my mom is that the emotions were really getting in the way and that's a big part of coping in life is unpacking the emotions and figuring it out and having people to talk to and someone to share this with and getting good guidance and you know I got none of the above and so yes my mom was medicated and yes she was a dual diagnosis as most circumstances are they're not pure clean cut typical there's no human being with that we sometimes get complacent Okay, so she got a label and a diagnosis, MCI, and a score out of 30. A hello? And what does this mean? Yeah, I so, don't know what that means. So <laughs> Wait, what? tell me more. It's, it's a very big part of the actual diagnosis, and one needs it. So routinely, anybody who's being assessed needs to complete a diagnostic assessment, and it's really a, a cognitive screening. And there are basically two predominant versions. One's called the MMSE. The other one's called the MOCA, proudly Canadian, but it is used internationally. And these are irrespective. They are scored out of 30. And they're trying to capture whether you fall within the norms for your age or below the norms. And so a score out of 30, 30, 30 would be perfect. And then decreasingly lower scores means more supposed difficulty hmm. now the funny thing is is that people focus a lot on these scores doctors because they're going to have to administer pharmaceuticals but it's really not that relevant in terms of the impact of the symptoms for example a person could be having very 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 mild difficulty and score really poorly hmm. now why would that be because a person actually knows how to compensate in ways or the score might be very poor and the person's coping like these are just different things that can occur so facing the diagnosis and facing the reality of the score are really not telling you how your life is disrupted doesn't tell you how you should or could or others could help it doesn't tell you anything and so as i was meandering through this back and forth diagnosis, reassessment, and that's sort of the norm. Come back in three months, come back in three months, come back in six months. We increase your medications, send you home with some information, do attend some group education sessions. I just began to question whether this really was as much as could be done. And at this point, everything that I had trained for prior 
as a speech language pathologist. In my work, in my work working with head injury and working with families and finding practical solutions for and working within a team, I began to compose in my head, well, what if? You know, what if? And literally it goes back to creativity. I kind of mapped out, well, where do I stand and what do I know? And why can't this apply to Alzheimer's and dementia? Why is this not being done? Why is this doctor not telling me, steering me? Why is my professional association not doing it? Why is nobody doing it? Oh and my I, gosh, that's so exciting to me that you started to think that way. It's at, a at a point in your career where so many people are just sick of it. So you were frustrated, but yep. it drove you to figure out how you could be of more service rather than just say, forget it, I'm out. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, that frustration, I think, is such a critical part of how we move forward. And I always say that about my clients. Like if I'm looking for a client to work with, I have to have somebody who's curious and open-minded, somebody who values achieving personal goals, and somebody who's a little bit pained, stressed. Those are my three criteria. Yes, there has to be a story of Alzheimer's and dementia or mild cognitive impairment in the picture, but if I've got that kind of a person to work with, we can work. And I'm sure you would agree that that curiosity for solving problems or curiosity to ask why and not just be complacent is actually such an important driving force you know, as women, I think we are natural problem solvers in practical ways. But I have found in, in the work that I've done is that a lot of people assume a lot of information. There's a lot of myths floating around and there's just, oh, you know, I'm so exhausted, stressed and overwhelmed. I'm just going to sit back and accept what I'm being told as accurate. And I've learned there's not a lot of truth to that. Wow. And then there's a lot of assumption that what I'm doing is working, even though I'm getting bad results. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Does this sound familiar to you? It sounds so familiar. And, you know, it's really, you know, when, when somebody is ready to get help from me, they're also curious. They have a sense that there is more out there. They just know that they're not equipped yet to move forward. But it's very different than someone who's not curious. Somebody who's not curious is not going to be motivated enough to even have a conversation. And they receive the information about what's possible very differently than somebody who is curious. So that, that is a, a very interesting observation from you. And, and also, when I first met you, I really wasn't clear on what a speech-language pathologist would have to offer in a, in a situation like this, like now that I've known you for, I don't know, like six or seven years already, I get it. But it's so obvious as you're explaining it that I remember too, and maybe this is why it hasn't been traditionally part of your career path as a profession, you know, it just didn't seem obvious to me. Exactly. And, you know, in different pockets of the world, there is a, a different standard. And certainly, um, one might say, you know, uh, American, Australian, and UK SLPs, as we call ourselves affectionately, um, do have a slightly different bias, and they're further ahead in, in accepting the role and responsibility of what um, SLPs can offer. And it's really kind of a simple part to understand is that we really are specialists of messages in and messages out. Right. And so we as humans um, obviously are connecting with the world and with the people around us. What the disruption is with any of those cognitive issues, whether we call it mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's, which is of one kind of the dementias, there's a disruption. And the disruption is the connection between human beings and between the world. So who better than a speech language pathologist? who knows how to sort of put that uh, glasses with the telescope, with the microscope, with the binoculars, as I always kind of visualize this, into focus to look at and to dissect where is that breakdown, not just with the person with the symptoms, but between the person in the symptom seat and the person sitting next to them. Perhaps it's their daughter, their son their spouse, 
And as we're sandwiching ourselves between um, young adolescence <laughs> and very old age, and I think we could all put ourselves into that category, it could be any one of us. The statistics are really high. It could be us, could it be our spouse, and it could be a parent. And how do we as women um, inform ourselves and pair ourselves? Because this is not a five-minute circumstance. This, is, this could be the new norm for a life. And all of these observations um, make us very much at risk. And the stress of dealing with the situation is huge. So what you're explaining is the importance of coping and finding strategies and also finding a partner because you are in that regard a really ideal partner, a guide to the person who's trying to find that new pathway, right? Yes, and uh, yeah, exactly. Some, and some of my clients have come, uh, they're ready for help after a long period of uh, being in support to a parent. And others are just, like you described, really stressed and just really not being able to focus on self-care or any of the things that they need in order to be able to manage all of it. So what do you advise for women in particular who are finding themselves in a key, like a lead role of supporting uh, a parent in particular with something like this going on in the family? It could be a spouse too, but I think most of my clients speak their parents. Well, I think, you know, women's roles have always centered around, you know, the balance and the family and in some ways advocacy. And it's really hard to make a set of rules other than to say we shouldn't expect that we would naturally know what to do and we shouldn't expect to shoulder doing it alone. And so being... Um, aware that others are going to bring value, um, share ideas, guidance, information. You know, I think that it's the village theory that we really do need a collective. And we just have to be quite discerning that we're not falling into a complacent belief of one falsehood myth, myth which can be perpetuated by banner media or other people's opinions you know sometimes there's that whole oh it's too big a job or I'm, I'm the caregiver no you're not there's no caregiving when you can be a care partner so there's a whole different role right Very so nice. I think as we are um, acquiring people to selectively help us and partner us we also have to be a good judges we have to be trusting of our own intuition we have to be open and vulnerable, and I think we have to learn to be uh, good listeners. You know, the community part of what you're talking about comes up in so many aspects of um, being at our age and stage, and so many women, even when there's not a crisis like this or something that is you know, going to really involve a lot of time and effort and knowledge and support, we don't many of us don't feel that we have the communities we thought we would have at this point in our lives. And that's with, without a big crisis. So when something big is going on, it does really uh, mean that you need to create that community for yourself so that you're not alone. That is so important. And, you know, this whole sort of vulnerability piece, which for me was quite a personal challenge. Um, I grew up in quite a private home. And my mom had anxiety disorder. So there was a lot of don'ts and shoulds. And I never knew where that was coming from. The funny part about it is that when it was diagnosed, and this goes back to her dual diagnosis, and she was medicated for her anxiety, she actually became the person she was destined to be. I didn't know her in that regard. She mm. became more open and free and more liberated. And I got a better version of my mom through this disease than I would have had had she not had that dual diagnosis and the medication because we don't know what we don't know. My dad was an overcompensator and my mom was complacent. 
So she lived with her anxiety disorder. And you know, mental health is not that far from cognitive changes. And all of this, being able to even talk about it with you and with others, um, you know, has really released the burden for me of being shamed or afraid or worried about being held in judgment. You know what? We're all just humans. We're all puttering around as best we can. And being yeah. open. <laughs> I think we have to be selective because sadly, uh, social media can be a very cruel um, methodology to get support. But I do believe in the kindness of uh, people. Maybe women are searching for more connection in general, and they should be uh, reaching out. I have many women's groups that I belong to for various circumstances, not because I don't like hanging out with guys. I do, too. And as a couple, I like that. But I think there's something very, very special about the trusting, caring, or gentle approach of women and women beautifully said but i don't i can't overlook something that you said a couple of minutes ago that was just so powerful about the unexpected gift you got from your mother's medication being more of a reflection of her personality that you never saw and i wonder when you think about your mother now that she's passed if that's the woman you think of Absolutely. I think that as a maturing woman myself going into my, you know, real mid-stage, and as I learned about my mom, I actually always feel this, that I was able to crawl right into her being because it allowed me through the process of my caring with, caring for um, my mom to actually get to know her as a really special person, and I hold those memories so close that at this point in reflection, as I look back, I know I have done everything. There's a lot of no regret, and I know you speak so um, openly about this, you know, regret proof. I really feel completely without regret because I was fortunate to be in the right place in the right time and use my skills and gather the resources in our community very selectively. You know, I, I took myself on a journey to say, um, there's that and that and that out there. I'm going to go and do it all. And I took every course, went to every support group. I was kind of insanely obsessed with acquiring the knowledge. And then I would literally, like a sieve, go through my experience and say, was this good? Was this worthy? What can I abstract? And in my office, it's really quite funny, Susie. I don't know that I, I, I've shown too many people this, but I keep a binder. It's a color binder. So I'm going to just show you one just so you know what, you know, just a regular cheap store binder. But every single educational opportunity that I have had over the history of my career and to this day, I open up a binder, label it. I have a catalog on my computer actually itemizing every single educational experience that I have wow. ever taken. Like I'm a research scientist and I do not have a PhD, but I'm just very methodical with honoring what I've heard, who I heard it from, what I learned. And I keep all of my files categorized by bundles. So I have like, inspirational speakers, professional education, and so on. And I, I have them all labeled, and I can access them on my computer. I know this sounds really unbelievably, what, scientifically obsessive. It's just so organized and reflective. <laughs> me. <laughs> but you know, it's kind of a funny thing is that there are moments when I would say to myself as I was struggling, you know, how, how am I to compare with the doctor? How am I to compare with that person who's published 25 articles or written a book or 10? Or, and, and they're telling me something and I'm dismissing it because it doesn't feel right, but they're so full of information. And then I would go and look at my information and say, I've paid my dues. I've studied. I've had a different education and I have had 
the ongoing curiosity education. I have had my professional training. I have had my community work. I'm having the hands-on experience. And I'm a lifelong learner. Mm. And I'm acquiring not the equivalent of a PhD because that is not what I have. But I am processing the yeah. information that's out there. And I'm like this conduit is just filtering and filtering. And I never stop acquiring a new perspective. And so each year I kind of look back and say, well, what did I learn? What do I want to set myself as a goal for next year? What don't I know? Why is that important? What can I give back? And all of this became really a cornerstone to how I managed my uh, managing and I guess coping with the stresses of my mom and then my dad's diagnosis, which was parlayed at the same time differently. And I had two parents running in two different directions, coping with the dynamics between them. And it's not an easy circumstance. But through it, I constantly reminded myself, I'm the girl to fix this. I'm the woman. Maybe I should reword that. I'm the person. I'm the person who is on this lifelong journey of curiosity and learning and partnership and sharing. And I'm not getting all the support that I need just given to me. I am going to go out there and get it. Well, that thought has served you well. That is, it's just such a beautiful way to think about it. But the part that, um, that you've really developed professionally is not only are you researching and bringing the information in, but then you're processing it and it's coming out. You're thinking about it in some kind of a framework that you've developed that is a more comprehensive family approach, like a system approach, really, a family system approach to really a realistic way to help family members and help yourself as you're dealing with all of this. It really has been the framework, and the framework is is a little bit of all that. And, you know, as open as I am with you, I'm very open with uh, my clients and my families, and they're like an extension of myself. I do compartmentalize, obviously. I don't, you know, worry about everybody in their lives. But I think it's such an important part as a therapist is to really see each person in their unique lives Mm. and provide a sensitivity about where they're at because we're all coming with a lot of you know, baggage and feelings and circumstances and stresses. And people feel very comfortable to share with me what's really going on. You know, when I ask, I may be working with um, a person and I ask, you know, bring me a photo, something that troubles you at home. And this person brought a picture of something that was a gentleman. It's a client of mine and a gentleman but it's his mom. And what's interesting about this is he brought the picture of something that he had not told the doctor, hadn't shared. And it really was the cornerstone to having his mom diagnosed that she was placing items inappropriately, garbage and possessions together. Mm -hmm. And it was troubling him And he didn't really know what to do with this information. And I understood exactly what was going on because I had done the assessment with his mom. And what was interesting is when he revealed that photo to me, the shame went away and he knew that he had an ally, Mm -hmm. that he had somebody who wasn't going to prejudge, who could take that information and say, thank you for sharing because what you're giving me is evidence is as important as what I'm seeing face-to-face with you and with your mom. And what I'm going to do is steer you in the right direction to get the medical help that you need ASAP so that all of that is happening on one front because we always need medical. We always need those experts who are trained in that. But at the very same time, we're going to be working on the communication strategies and the coping strategies and the community piece and all those bits and pieces and the community um, supports through different agencies. But he knows he can trust me. And that's yeah. a, a, a sort of a strange situation. Um, I don't work that um, often with a young male, mm. this being the only son of this mother. but 
I feel that we as women sometimes have that capacity to be very mindfully patient and supportive. And I think that that goes a long way when we're reaching out for help in any regard. Right, right. Well, there's two um, specific questions I wanted to ask you now that we have somebody uh, on the Women in the Middle, on the Women in the Middle podcast with such skill and insight. Um, what are some of the things that women can look for if they're concerned? That, like you said, you were super surprised. So all the pamphlets tell you the the obvious signs. But what are some of the things that we might notice that we should follow up on with our parents? That's a really good question. And, you know, there's so much information on different um, websites. You know, you can look at the 10 signs and the 15 signs and the 20 signs. And, you know, what's really interesting about all the information that is out there, and I will give you a summary list of my experiences as well, is that we as adult learners, do not actually learn through being given written information when it comes to something highly charged and emotional. How we learn is actually in a more dynamic, user-friendly, stress-free circumstance, and it has to be graphic. And so <laughs> here we have this um, reliance on a book and a writing and a pamphlet and a brochure and a checklist but really what we need is a person. Mm. So if I was working with somebody and I would tell somebody, you know, what you should do, I might inadvertently go back to that same false checklist. Like if you have one, two, three, what I would actually say is something a little different. I think that when you notice a change that you feel in your gut, that you even have a query. You don't know what it is about and you don't know the reason. We shouldn't be jumping to any conclusions. You are feeling something is not quite like it is with others. It's almost a sensory awareness. The best thing to do is to become a keen observer and keep a journal. Mm -hmm. And I mean a journal, you don't have to be as methodical as I might be like <laughs> in a circumstance. Although I do get my clients to do just that, you know, later on. I would just put it in the awareness because raising awareness is what we really need to do is raise awareness that as we age, we do become forgetful. We do forget some words. We forget telephone numbers. We've got our cell phones with all this information. And so as we're bumping along, you know, with this change as we're normally aging, Anybody who is a little different, such as I called to pick you up from, say, let's give a scenario. Um, I phone mom and I say, um, you know, be ready at uh, 9.20. I'm dropping the kids off at school and I'm going to be at your apartment or condo at 9.30. Be, please be ready because we have the doctor's appointment or we got the hairdressing appointment. And then you arrive, and where's mom? She's not down in the foyer at 9.30. So the natural inclination is, I told you to be ready. I'm impatient. There's traffic. We have to be wherever. And there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what really happened. Now, if that just happens once in a blue moon, of course we can dismiss that because breakdowns in communication do occur. But when you backtrack a story like this in the context of the actual diagnosis, here are some circumstances that could be operating. Mom didn't hear you. And we know that there's a large correlation between cognitive change and hearing loss. And my background as an audiologist, since I did a dual, a dual degree, uh, although I don't practice as an audiologist, really gets me to understand what is the impact of not hearing. So just as an example, maybe mom didn't hear. Why? Were you speaking from your car phone, which is not the best transmission method? Were you speaking too quickly? Was mom in a room where there was background noise? Um, did she write down the information? You know, all these things are possibilities. Mm -hmm. Did you phone and prompt her in the morning? Do you always need to prompt her? Did she arrive wearing the right clothing? 
and the right outerwear for the right season. You know, if you are saying, Mom, why didn't you bring your raincoat? Maybe she wasn't aware that it was raining. That's a signal. Like all of these little breakdowns are actually the clues. But what I've noticed is that people get more impatient and they're just saying, you know, why I told you, why didn't you, with an assumption that the parent in this example is, is following along at the same speed and processing all this information. So let's say you gather some circumstances like this, or you notice mom is particularly quiet in social situations, or that you're walking together in the mall and then she's wandering off and doesn't know where she is, or she tells you, I parked my car and I can't find it. I often get myself lost. I keep losing my wallet, my keys. I don't know where I've put my items. Or you look in the fridge and you notice things that aren't fresh. Or you notice duplicate items being purchased. Or you notice she's no longer eating the foods that she used to. There are so many of these little signs that we just need to be mindfully checking. Is it business as usual, give or take a little bit of aging, or is something else going on? And so we shouldn't jump to conclusions. There are many, many reasons. But let's say we respond by being open-minded and aware. It's time to go and see the GP. You need to go to the doctor and just get a wellness check. And you need to have that conversation. Matter of fact, you know, Mom, I think that or you speak ahead with the doctor, it's really important just to iron out any other deficiencies and circumstances and not jump to conclusions, but to make it norm that in future you go with to the doctor, not send mom to the doctor. Because if you have a concern, the doctor may not want to speak in front of the person with the symptoms, the same as they would want to speak to you. And you can always send the doctor information they have an obligation to read it. They don't have an obligation to report back to you without the person's consent. But if you write a letter, email, or call, and say, I have a concern about something, the doctor has to take that seriously. Ooh, so, so good. That important piece of information. Yeah. So the advocacy and the communication that is an important extension of my professional work is who do you tell, how do you tell it, who do you involve, where do you poke your nose into, and as women, we really have this um, ability to be to morph to whatever we need to be. We need to find out who are the gatekeepers of the information and become allies and who are the obstructors and try to avoid those people and try to kind of, I know it's, it's, a, it's a tough job, but it's we have to give ourselves permission to not just be complacent. Yes, that's so good. Okay, one more question. Before I let you go, uh, for somebody who is very much involved with a situation that's getting worse, what can you offer uh, in terms of coping? Some of the strategies that, that may not be as obvious uh, to support this amazing woman in the middle who is doing her best right now, but very frustrated and feeling overwhelmed. Well, the first important thing I guess I would always give is I always give hope because um, I do follow a rehabilitation model, meaning that I approach all of these um, cognitive diagnoses with the same, um, it's a universal message of it's a disability. We have to look at United Nations um, World Health Organization classification. This is a disability. And for any kind of a disability that is a physical or cognitive, it doesn't really matter. We really have to look at the fact that it has an impact. It has an impact and it has a trajectory. And just because it's been known that these are chronic circumstances, that means that they didn't happen today and they'll get better. They're happening slowly, quite insidiously. And they might be quite progressive and that we do expect that over time that they will get worse as a condition. There's been up to 
more recent times, there's been a, a sense that, well, we may as well kind of like just prepare for the end. And I say no, because the hope is that if we do approach this as a rehabilitation opportunity, then what we have here is to examine the situation right now. So if somebody comes for help early, that's the right now. Somebody comes for help later on, that's the right now. It's never too late. And at the point of meeting that person and giving a measure of hope to the person is to actually get the facts. We cannot solve and cannot give strategies unless we know the facts. And the facts means as basic as the assessment. And so for me, uh, in my profession, that means one face-to-face -face direct um, contact. Now, with technology and so on and so forth, it's become easier to do this by a video conferencing. Although in my experiences, my clients travel to me for that because the dynamic of being in the same room with a person is not easily transmitted in even something like we're doing today with video conferencing. So I think that the assessment is critical. And here's where I might differ from many of my colleagues. My colleagues might use a very traditional standardized assessment, which does not yield the right kind of information. And I use a dynamic, personalized, evidence-based assessment. So when I have the facts, when I have that information, not just the fears and worries, although I do want to hear all of that, and I do questionnaires with my family members and so on and so forth, once I have seen the person, I would say that the strategies are not general strategies because they will give general success. <laughs> that might mean 50%, which I don't really think is good enough. We want to be strategically between 80 to 100% successful. That means that if I know what will work in your situation, and I tell you that one strategy, that one strategy could be such an important skill that you need to learn that will completely shape how you manage everything else from that point. That's the strategy that I think we need to tell. So even though it's tempting for me to say, you know, be this, do that. No, I say if you want general information, do look at the Internet. If you want specific information that is targeted in your situation for your success, it does involve that process of the assessment. And from that point on, the sky's the limit. Because creativity, which came up earlier in our discussion, is actually the key to the success of implementing the right strategy in the right way, for the right reasons, for the measured impact that we are agreeing will help, help the person with the symptoms and help. So I kind of want to um, not give that, that list other than that there is a new approach and people should feel compelled to finding someone that they feel that they can work with. And it might mean a couple sessions or it might mean I have clients who work with me for years and years and years and years but that's their choice. The choice is to empower people with their hope and the opportunity. That's the best strategy. Yeah, no, I really like that. And just knowing that it's okay to ask more questions and to be more demanding in a good way for more creative solutions that are very customized to the exact situation. I mean, just knowing that it's okay to ask for more is huge in a situation like this. When it is so common to feel overwhelmed and you might be intimidated by the professionals you're working with that you don't, you know, the whole people pleasing thing that you don't want to insult them by asking more questions or any of that. That is so good. So Heather, do you work with people outside of, of local, your local Toronto uh, Thornhill area? Well, I do because a lot of the families that I work with, um, it's sort of interesting. Um, if I'm uh, in a more of a consultative role, then yes. So I can provide consultative services. So that is obviously under the circumstances some people live in uh, Canada and the parent may live in the States or vice versa or anywhere else in the world, right? So 
It is um, a challenging circumstance. So I follow my professional guidelines and each situation is unique. What I would say is that information now is global and support should be global. And my registration is that I practice in the province of Ontario. But as a human being, we all need the kind of help that we need. I know that I use international um, uh, professionals for my education. So why would I not use international people to support me uh, for the knowledge that I want to acquire? So, so how can somebody get a hold of you? Because I know somebody <laughs> out there is chomping at the bit. <laughs> well, I'm as easy to reach and I'm a one person show. So that's the other thing about empowerment is that I like control over everything that I do. I recognize them myself. I find it very difficult to live with a protocol um, that makes no sense. And so I need that leverage, but I partner with as many people who can support me with things I don't know how to do, but um, people can reach me directly. And um, my website is www.communicationtherapyforadults.com, or one word, and the word for is F-O-R, communicationtherapyforadults.com. So I'm very accessible. I answer everybody's messages. Whoever wants to speak with me obviously can speak um, for 10, 15 minutes free consultation because I do want to get the lay of the land. And I get strange and interesting emails and texts and, you know, it could be long weekends, Saturday evening at 11.20. And I know that person was stressed and had some thinking over that long weekend. But, you know, I, I'm respectfully um, available to people. And my clients have my cell number and my text. And they will call me, even if I haven't been working with them for a period of time and a circumstance comes up. I'll get a text, I'll get a call, some new changed circumstance, and we can do telephone conference, we can do all sorts of creative things, and it, it's so helpful to be able to morph what I am and what I know to what is measurably tailored to the needs of the person. Yes, that is a really positive effect of uh, technology right now. It's helping so many of us give more service in a more creative and customized way. So good. So yeah. thank you so much for being here today on the Women in the Middle podcast. I love your story. Like in terms of the actual perspective that you've shared for women our age, coping and dealing and supporting a family member who's going through this sort of thing, it's so, so useful and fresh and, and empowering. And then also to hear your story about the way you transformed your own career um, has been so useful. That information too is so useful to so many women who are getting a little bored or feeling a little unfulfilled to really reflect on what they're looking for and how they can repurpose their career. It's so, so interesting. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here with us today. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, your energy is what I'm enjoying. You are a jewel. And I, I really honor the work that you're doing and that you can steer individuals and really partner them through very difficult times. So I, I can't thank you enough for your interest and for the work that you do. It's been oh. a pleasure. Thanks, Heather. Talk to you soon. Take care. That's it for today's episode. As Heather said, having the right factual knowledge is key. Curiosity can totally play an incredibly important role, though. Knowing exactly what you can do about these conditions is empowering. Whether you're worried about your parent, your spouse, or even yourself, a gentle professional approach gives you access to the keys to knowledge, guidance, skills, and strategies designed just for you. My focus as a midlife coach is to help you waste less time and get excited about your life again. Sometimes it's with an amazing podcast interviewee like today, and other times it's with mindfulness coaching. Being the queen of your brain domain is the best way to be, seriously. Check out the show notes with more information and links at suzyrosenstein.com. To grab your free consult with Heather Nagan, 
go to www.communicationtherapyforadults.com, download my free ebook, Nine Secrets to Get Unstuck in Your 50s at susierosenstein.com forward slash nine secrets. And there are three ways to connect more with me in the future. The first way, join the free Women in the Middle Facebook group where we continue this podcast conversation. Head over to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash women in the middle community. The second way, work with me directly and get unbelievably effective coaching to take you from being stuck and confused to being crystal clear and excited about your future. You want to do that? I'd love to have you in my calendar. Just grab your kickstart call at www.talktosusie.com. And three, if you're ready to put yourself first for a change, what a concept. Join the Finally First Midlife Membership. This is an upbeat virtual community for women who want clarity, courage, and connection to do midlife on purpose and regret-proof their lives. Sign up at www.iamfinallyfirst.com. Doors will open again soon. Let's do this, ladies. Let's do midlife on purpose. We need each other. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.